right, today we're going to start the end of <laughs> chapter 2 in 1 Peter. Um, we're going to do that last paragraph, um, but we're going to finish it in a couple of weeks. Um, there's just too much there. I didn't want to um, do a disservice to this text, so we're going to actually going to cover this in two weeks. So we're going to pick up in verse 18 to the end of the chapter. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Father, we need you to speak to us this morning. Uh, but we also need you to stir us up in the Spirit so that we receive these words, so that we believe these words, so that we know how to apply them and that we also want to apply them to our circumstances today and in the days to come. And so we ask that you would do this in the name of Jesus, our Savior who indeed is the chief shepherd of our souls. Amen. As I read this, it's uh, easy for me to think back on the bosses that I've had. Uh, like many of you, I've had a lot of bosses. And some of them were really good bosses. They would be, as Peter has described here, good and gentle. Uh, my first boss actually treated me as if I were her son in many ways. Uh, she gave me lots of responsibility and she overlooked a lot of my uh, failings and weaknesses. Probably shouldn't have done that part. But uh, <laughs> she was a good boss because she wanted me to grow and in terms of my ability to be a good employee and a, a good person. I've had other bosses that... Uh, Unfortunately, I've wanted to do bad things too, like throw under a bus, um, because they were not pleasant to work for. Uh, they were impulsive. They were um, unrealistic in their demands, and they were harsh to people. It was all about them. 
And we've all kind of had both of those, hopefully we've all had both of those kinds of bosses. Not that I want you to have a bad boss, but uh, I want you to have a good one. But sometimes we struggle with the bad ones. I had the experience once of working for good friends, and that was interesting. Because I had a different relationship to them than everyone else I worked with. And when they're not around, when my, my friends were not around, you know, I would hear how people would speak about them. Boy, was that fun. <laughs> because I kept those words from my friends. Made it difficult. Peter is uh, speaking here about one of those things that all of us have to deal with, and that is work. But he also brings into that equation something else that we all have to deal with, and that is unjust suffering. Here he kind of brings it up in the context of work, but we see that we will see that it goes far beyond that context. And in the midst of this, uh, Peter wants us to know that Jesus helps us to submit to unjust masters. And I use that word because Peter uses that particular word. And we're going to get to that in just a few moments. And let's start with this uh, notion, this idea that's a little different than what you have in your notes. And that is to submit to your boss with God in mind. See, I missed my own thing here and messed up and threw myself off. Submit to your boss or your master with God in mind. See, Peter is calling this, uh, is, is bringing this call to submission, this larger context that we started a few weeks ago. Uh, it goes beyond the government, and he brings it here and applies this to another institution, and that human institution is work. Work is part of the creation mandate. Adam, when he was made, was placed in the garden. And he wasn't placed in the garden to sit in a hammock, although he could do that, but he was placed in the garden to keep it, to work it, precisely because God is a God who works. He worked in creation, and as Jesus said, He continues to work to this very day. And so work is not something that is a curse to us. Work is something that was good, but it is something that has become cursed because of humanity's fall into sin. And so one aspect of that curse is that work becomes difficult and we serve someone in addition to serving God. And so Peter starts off, servants, be subject to your masters. And what's interesting here is that in uh, Ephesians 6 and Colossians 3, Peter uses the term doulos, slaves. Peter, uh, sorry, Paul uses that term. Peter here does not use doulos, bondservant or slave. He uses a word that is connected to that word oikos or house because he speaks of domestics for some reason that we'll explore for a moment. These were the people who worked in the house. They could be free, they could be slave, it could be either one of those two, but they were all under the authority of the master of the house. The despot, if you want to transliterate it, of the house. And so, while 
work, again, is part of who we are. It's part of the image of God that is being displayed. It has been this, this slavery, this subjection is in part part of the curse, part of the thorns and the thistles by which we eat because of our sweat. Paul is speaking to a culture in which up to 50% of the people would have been slaves. We can't fathom that. That's beyond our experience in many ways. Now, the slavery that they experienced was different than the American expression of slavery that uh, was part of the rationale for the Civil War. Uh, Their slavery resulted from a couple of things. Your country was defeated, and you were a soldier, and you lost, and you now became a slave to the victor. Some people were slaves because they were impoverished and they had no other way to survive but essentially to sell themselves into slavery. And so the the process of man-stealing, which was foundational to the African slave trade, is not what we're talking about here. And so while this is still a, a reflection of the curse, it was not the same kind of experience to the same degree uh, that we saw in this country. And so let's, uh, let's not impute the one to the other in either direction. Okay. What's interesting is that many of these domestics were very educated people. These people who were in slavery were sometimes very educated and very skilled. Some of them were doctors, lawyers, accountants. They were not all manual laborers. When you look at the Jewish and Stoic household codes, they would tend to address the master, the despot, and not the slave or servant. And so Peter is here, just like Paul did, kind of turning things on their head by addressing both of them. Although, actually, Peter doesn't address the masters here. Which makes you wonder about those particular congregations if, if just similar to what uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, that not many of you are noble, maybe very few of them or none of them were the despot, the master, the rich, but that the entire congregation was made up more of the people who were the servants, the domestics, the lower end of the social strata. And what's pertinent about that is, they were more vulnerable to persecution by this master. So, Peter begins with this command that they should be subject to this despot. They were to, in other words, align their will under the will of the person in charge. They were to work towards fulfilling the agenda of the master as opposed to work for fulfilling their own personal agenda. That is a challenge, to say the least. We struggle with our own kingdom. And what Paul, Peter is saying here, I'm going to do that all day, aren't I? <laughs> what Peter is saying here, which is similar to what Paul would say 
is that we are to lay aside our agenda, our kingdom, for the kingdom of the one who is above us. Now, it's not just about actions. Because Peter also says that they were to do this with all respect. And so this, this points back to the attitude with which you perform that person's will. With some measure of respect for the position that person holds. I remember my first job. And while I had great affection for my immediate supervisor, I didn't always have affection for the rest of my supervisors. And there was one day in particular that I remember that the manager of the store uh, had told me to do something. Apparently the, the sale on the diapers was not going as well as he had hoped, and so he wanted this great display of diapers. And I can't remember why this so infuriated me, but infuriated me it did. And I was ranting and I was raving, and I'm hauling diapers out from the backyard, uh, the back storeroom, and I was going to build a tower of diapers. I was not. I was submitting or doing the will of the store manager, but I was not doing it with any measure of respect. And what Peter wants is not just the tower of diapers to be built, so to speak, but to be, for it to be done in a spirit of gentleness and humility, not with rage and anger. As he mentions in Colossians 3, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And so here's the twist. It's not that we submit to the masters who are good and who are gentle, although we submit to them, Peter says, but we are also called to submit to the unjust. Not every boss is a good boss. Not every boss is a reasonable boss. Not every boss um, realizes you have a life outside of work. Right? But let's pause for a second. Because everything that follows here, while it's given in the context of this relationship, is also going to be true of other relationships in which there is authority. Home life. Not every wife is going to have a reasonable husband or a husband who is reasonable at every moment of the day. Children, your parents may not always be just. There may be moments in which they are unjust. I see that out there, that looking and snickering. Ha ha ha. Yeah, there are moments when your parents are unreasonable. And there are some parents who are always unreasonable, but I hope we don't have any here today who are like that. 
so this this instruction sort of expands beyond this one relationship uh, of work, but is also true of other relationships in which there is inequality in terms of authority. As I mentioned, these people, these domestics, may have suffered persecution from the master of the house, the despot. They have they've probably been treated unfairly, but also treated unfairly for their faith. Now, Peter wants to make a distinction. And it's a very important distinction. That if, if they suffer for having sinned, for having spoken out against the despot, for uh, having, having stolen something from their master, from uh, being lazy or any other kind of sin that you might imagine. If they suffer for that reason and suffer well, Peter says, you don't receive any praise. There's no grace in that. You deserved what you got. I was reminded a little bit about this watching some hockey. I actually had the opportunity to watch a playoff game the other day for the Bruins. And uh, there was a key play in the overtime where a Bruins player had been unjustly elbowed in the head. And instead of taking the unjust action of the other player, what he did was kind of flick the other guy in the face. And of course, what did the referee see? He missed the elbow to the head, saw the flick. One guy gets sent to the penalty box. And amazingly, the guy who threw the elbow to the head is the one who scored the game-winning goal about 30 seconds later. The Bruins player suffered well in that he took responsibility for his actions. He shouldn't have retaliated, but he gets no praise because he shouldn't have retaliated. He sinned in that respect within the rules of the game. They were to receive praise, Peter says, when they suffer well, even though they've done the right thing. And so that's the idea of unjust suffering. When you do the right thing, but the boss or the parent or the teacher is unreasonable and causes you to suffer. I won't talk about my sixth grade teacher that brings up too much pain for me. Um, but here's the thing. They were able to endure this if they were mindful of God. Paul says something like that in Colossians, you know, with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Well, here Peter kind of brings up this idea of being mindful of God, keeping God in view of this, that I'm not simply serving this master, but ultimately I am serving God, and therefore I'm going to do a good job even if this other person is annoying. Even if this other person is misguided, even if this other person is unreasonable, even if this other person is, and you can keep filling in the blanks. 
But because I want to please the one who has redeemed me, I'm going to continue to align my will with that of the person above me unless they're telling me to sin. And I'm going to continue to do this in a right manner because I want to bring glory to God and I will do it. And so we work not simply for whomever pays us money, whether, even if that's just an allowance, uh, but ultimately for God who made us. Secondly, I know I hold, held up three fingers. Secondly, <laughs> God suffered unjustly, or rather Christ suffered unjustly as an example for us. You see, Peter has just given them a very hard word because so many of them were in that position. They were the ones who had to submit to unjust masters, but he does not want to leave them in despair. He reminds them that this is not just accidental, this is not just coincidental, but actually they have been called to do this very thing, but their calling is because they are in Christ, and Christ has suffered unjustly. Just as Jesus has suffered unjustly, all who are united to Him should expect to suffer unjustly. It's part of our call. Not the part of the call to Christ that we like. But it is part of our calling in Christ. As Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, it, you, it has been appointed to you not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for Him. So we find this theme of suffering once again emerging in Peter's letter. We're called to this because Christ suffered for you, or perhaps translated, on your behalf, leaving you an example. And so he's later going to get to the, the idea of substitutionary atonement, and we'll get that to that in two weeks. But right now, this is suffering as an example. The Scriptures do not teach Christ's suffering as either an example or atonement, but actually both. And here he focuses on example. What's interesting is that this word is the one that was used in the teaching of children how to write. Where We still do something similar to this today, where the children would have something to write over. The letters are written, and so they learn how to write the letters by writing over the letters that are already there. And then you move on, of course, you know, you trace over it, then you move on to the dashed line, and you, and you write, you know, connecting all the dashes, and then eventually you begin to just write freehand. That's the idea. This tablet that was given to them to teach them examples of proper letters for them to trace to learn how to do this. And so Jesus has suffered to provide us with an example in order to teach us how to do this, which is, of course, suffering unjustly, but well in the sight of God. He didn't just do this as an example, but we see that Peter brings another metaphor into this, that we could walk in his footstep Footsteps. Jesus has walked this road in front of us and He calls us to follow Him and walk in those footsteps. 
It's kind of hard for us to picture that perhaps because we live in a desert and we don't see footsteps a lot. Uh, But if you go to a place where it rains, sometimes you see footsteps. Just like when you track animals, you can find their prints. I remember hiking last summer in the Adirondacks and I could see the deer prints going along the trail that I was walking along. Living in the Northeast and experiencing the reality of snow, you get to see footprints in the snow and you can follow someone rather easily. And so we are meant to follow Jesus, walking in his footsteps in this regard. And Peter explains for us what these steps look like. He reminds us that Jesus suffered even though he had committed no sin. And put within the context of the domestic, Jesus didn't steal from the master. Jesus didn't speak badly about the master. Uh, Jesus did not lie about his actions to the master. Jesus had broken none of the household rules. We see this as a fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah 53, 9, which Peter is quoting here. He's alluding to very clearly. We see this as well. Remember uh, the end of Luke 24 when the thief is on the other cross and he basically quotes the same passage. Jesus did indeed experience temptation and Jesus did indeed experience affliction. And yet, as we see in Hebrews chapter 4, he did this without sinning, but he understands what it is like to be afflicted. He understands what it is like to be afflicted and tempted as a result. And so, even though he suffered, um, he didn't suffer because he sinned, and he didn't sin because he suffered. You got that? He didn't suffer because he sinned. And he didn't sin because he had suffered. And we see this, that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. He was receiving verbal abuse, and we saw that uh, on Monday, Thursday, as the, the, the thief was hurling abuse at Jesus, and the soldiers were hurling abuse at Jesus, Jesus did not return their verbal abuse. He did not strike back, which is, of course, our natural tendency, our tendency in fallen Adam. If there's anyone who could legitimately threaten someone while they're hanging on a cross, it's Jesus. Because as he said, he could call down legions of angels to bring the wrath of God upon these people, and yet he didn't. He didn't say, just you wait till I'm on that white throne of judgment, buddy. (laughs) You'll see who's really in charge. He didn't do that. He didn't threaten them even though it would not be an empty threat. He did not return in kind. But what is it that he did do? Peter wants us to know that. He continued entrusting himself. The the verb tense has that idea of 
continuing. This is not a one-time action that he did. Uh, you know, uh, he entrusted himself at the beginning of this process, but throughout this whole process of suffering unjustly, Jesus was continuing to entrust himself to someone else. And who is that someone else? That someone else is him who judges rightly. All these earthly judges got it wrong. Pilate sort of got it right, and he said, there's no cause for this man to be punished, but because you, got, you, you Jews are giving me a hard time, and because you're threatening me to write to Caesar, I'm going to do it anyway. Unlike the Jewish leaders who saw Jesus as a threat and decided to destroy him, this judge is one who will judge rightly with justice and with fairness. The Father is the one that Jesus was entrusting Himself to. Because He knows that with the Father there is only going to be justice. Perhaps we remember Deuteronomy 32, verse 35, Vengeance is Mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. That might be familiar to you because it's quoted in part in Romans 12. When Peter, uh, Paul did it again. When, when Paul is telling them not to seek vengeance. Why? He says, because God is going to do it. That is God's province, not your province. And let Him take care of the injustice. And so Jesus upon the cross was trusting in the character of His Father who avenges and who brings justice. And this didn't happen immediately. As I mentioned uh, last week, well, I was watching the American Crime Story, the O.J. Simpson case. Thus far on earth, there has been no justice for Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman. No one has gone to jail for the crimes of their murder. But there will be justice. In the, uh, the last episode of this, they... They had this conversation between Marsha Clark, who was the prosecutor, and um, Charles Darden, who was uh, her assistant. And they were talking about why they were prosecutors, because now they were both questioning why they should be prosecutors. And she revealed that the reason she was a prosecutor was because she had been raped and the man got off. And so she was fighting for the victims so that that would not happen again because it so frequently happens. But this does not happen with God. The guilty will be held accountable. Whether it is because of Christ who has borne the guilt of their crime and sin or whether they bear it themselves, it will happen. And so for our benefit, Jesus suffered unjustly and continued entrusting Himself to the Father. Alright, 
what about us? <laughs> How does this apply? How does this all kind of fit together? Well, there's a call here, I believe, to confess your mess and receive His grace to walk in His footsteps. Let's be honest. When we suffer unjustly at work or at home, we deal with um, unpleasant emotions. We can be filled with rage, like I was building my tower of diapers. Okay? Um, A babble of diapers. Um, Or we could be depressed. Turning that anger inward and dealing with depression. We see Moses who was dealing uh, with unjust uh, criticism by the people of Israel in this case uh, because, because of what happened in the desert there in Numbers 20. And so what Moses did was he was instructed to speak to the rock, but he struck the rock twice. Big deal, we might think. But remember when Mark read that, what happened to Moses and Aaron? They lost their job. They were not going to lead the people into the promised land. Joshua was going to do that. And when we give in to our anger, we can lose our job. And if you lose enough of them, you won't get another one. I try to remind my children of this periodically because I see too much of my anger in them. And so, we, should, we need to start with the fruit of our lives in that moment. Uh, the, the rage, the breaking of things, the building of the tower, the whatever it might be. Confess these sinful aspects of your response, whether they are emotions or whether they are actions. But don't stop there. We should analyze what produced that fruit. In other words, we need to work from the fruit down to the root of that. What do these actions say about who I think I am? Do do they say that uh, I deserve better? Are they a function of my pride? Do they say that I think I'm alone and I have to handle all of this stuff by myself? Do they say that I am foolish and stupid to have trusted in someone else or to trust in myself? My actions say something about who I think I am, and so do yours. So that's something you own. But it's not just about you. More importantly, it's about God. Confess what you think about God. Because your fruit might think, might, might be based on the lie that He has deserted you. Or perhaps that He doesn't love you. Or perhaps that you think God is unjust and therefore you must take these matters into your own hands. And so the fruit is produced by a root that is your bad theology at that moment. So confessing your mess can go deep. 
But we don't want to stop with confessing the mess. We also need to receive the grace of God. And so we have to confess our sin just as we, uh, sorry, our faith just as we have confessed our sin. And instead of going from the fruit to the root, what you do is go from the root to the fruit. Did I just say that right? Fruit, root, root, fruit. <laughs> okay? You start with God. Who is God really? You have to confess, He is good. He is patient. He is just. Especially when you're experiencing the injustice of others. And so think about who He says He is and confess that as actually true. You confess as well who you are because you have been united to Jesus Christ. And that's the first couple chapters of this book. This letter are all about who you are because you have been united to Jesus Christ. Paul talks at great length about who we are because we're united to Jesus Christ. You need to remind yourself and confess that you are a son of God, that you are part of the holy priesthood, that you are... And you can go on. Not only that, cry out for the fruit of the Spirit to begin to replace the works of the flesh that you have been exhibiting. That's how we apply this. Because you will experience unjust suffering. And you will have a response to it. And if it's an ungodly response, confess it as it is and cry out that what is true would be more evident in your life. And so unjust suffering will find us. It might be a bully at school. It might be a bullyish teacher at school. It might be the boss who is insecure or a workaholic and expects you to be the same. It might be a spouse who is impulsive and just won't listen to you. We are faced with choices. Do we act like the old man in Adam? Or do we act like the new man in Christ? We are to confess our attraction to the works of the flesh. We're to confess our need for Christ. We're to remember that He walked that path with us in mind. And because of that, and because we're united to Him, we can trust Him to help us. We can entrust ourselves to Him to help us. To judge justly. Because He's just. Let's pray. Father, unlike Jesus, uh, we often suffer because we sin, and we sin because we suffer. But I thank You for a Savior who did neither and is able to rescue us. So I thank You for grace. I thank You for the grace uh, that we have that pardons us from those times when we have suffered because we've sinned. 
I thank You for that grace that pardons us for those times that we have sinned because we have suffered. But I thank You just as much for purifying grace. That grace that is given to us so that we may walk in the footsteps of Jesus. So Father, this week, help us to trace that out. Help us to crudely follow that example until it becomes increasingly natural for us to follow that example of Jesus. But it's only the powerful work of Your Spirit that enables us to do that. And so work by that Spirit to apply what Jesus has done for us so that we can change that we can be restored to the image we were meant to bear. And we ask this in His name. Amen.